It is good to be back with you again tonight. I know the week has gone quickly for us and uh, hope so that it, uh, it, you, you feel the same way, that it hasn't been uh, forever for you. Uh, but uh, we've enjoyed being here with you and getting to meet so many of you, and I've, I've gotten to see some old friends while we've been here. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's been, uh, well, I've looked forward to this meeting for a long time, and we've had some problems with scheduling and so forth, but it, it finally came to, to pass, and, and it's been great. I hope that you have been uplifted by some of the messages and encouraged. That's the purpose of these meetings, and uh, I know that we have. Um, we've had to drive back and forth each night. Um, I, I teach in the school of, of preaching in Carnes, and uh, so we had to get back for classes. And uh, but you know that three hours driving uh, to and from, uh, we've nearly settled or solved every problem in the world. Uh, so by tonight's home drive or drive home tonight, I think we'll have it all solved. But anyway, it's it's been good to be with you, and it's good to be with Randy. You know, you you guys, I hope that you tell Randy how much you appreciate him and uh, the work that he's doing here. Randy is one of the most hardworking, knowledgeable, committed, and um, uh, I can't read your writing, Randy. What's that say? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have done it. I can't stop myself sometimes. But uh, no, seriously, he is a great guy and his family and, and you're, you're – um, blessed to have them here and i hope you'll hold their hands up as they're uh trying to do the work here as well you know the the building has been full every night i really appreciate uh you know it's discouraging sometimes to go places and it's obvious that no work has been done it's just uh maybe a uh, well, this is just what we do each year, you know, and, and we go through formality, but uh, the attendance has been great, and I appreciate that. And it's not that I wouldn't preach to smaller crowds. I, I've done much smaller uh, assemblies before. You guys have packed the building, but when I was in college, I preached, um, well, there was a, a church that was kind enough to let me practice on them many years ago, and uh, there were 22 on Sunday morning and eight on Sunday night. And we knew that's how many it was always going to be. And we knew that, uh, well, well, we started, we didn't start by the clock, we started when they got here. You know, we knew who was supposed to come. On Sunday night, well, they had two rows of pews like this, but on Sunday nights there would be eight and they would sit in the first two rows right there. And there was an older lady who fell asleep every Sunday night, every time. And her head would fall back and her mouth would open and she would snore almost as loud as I talked. And I couldn't look away like to get away from her and look over here because nobody's sitting over here. Uh, and I had to just preach to this woman who was snoring at me. And uh, again, Randy, if you can behave tonight, we'll be fine. Um, I know we get tired as the week goes on, but like I said, it's just been great being with you, and uh, we appreciate you all. Wish the best for you as you go forward. Serve the Lord. Don't, don't give up. Uh, one of the saddest things to see in people are people who have given their lives, the, the, the vast majority of their life, and get close to the finish, and then they quit. Um, there's nothing more sad and tragic than that. Hang in there. Uh, all the way to the end, and uh, you'll have eternity to be thankful for that. Tonight, I want to talk about uh, why should you be a Christian? 
why be a faithful Christian? You, you do know that if you're a Christian, it's going to be hard. I don't know. Sometimes Christians tell lies, and one of the lies that we sometimes tell is, hey, you want your life to get better? Give it to the Lord, and your life will get easier. Not so. Maybe, but maybe if you become a Christian, you're going to have hardship. I know that Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I also know that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that if you become one of my disciples, you're going to have enemies in your own family. Your sons and your daughters will become your enemies. Your father and your mother will become your enemy. You'll have people that will hate you. If you become a child of God, you're going to have to deny yourself take up a cross and follow Jesus. All of these things were told ahead in advance. And so I think it's a really fair question as we go out and tell the world, give your life to Jesus. If they responded and said, uh, why? Can you give me a good reason why? Because I know the Bible says the things that you just said, there's trouble ahead for me if I give my life to the Lord. So give me a good reason why I should be a Christian, or give me a good reason why I should be faithful as a Christian. And I want to do that tonight, but I don't want to give you a reason. I want to give you three reasons. If you're not yet a Christian, I want you to listen to what I have to say tonight, and I want you to weigh the evidences that I present, and I hope you'll make a decision for the Lord. If you're already a Christian, but maybe you've let some space come between you and God, you're not as close as you used to be, and you know deep down that probably there may be some things in my life I wouldn't really want the Lord to come back tonight because of these things. If you haven't, if you're not in a right relationship with God, I want you to give, I want you to give these three considerations um, some attention and thought tonight. The first reason why you ought to be a Christian or why you ought to be faithful as a Christian is because of what Jesus did for you. You owe him. You, you, you do realize what he did for you. He died on a cross for you. And we sometimes talk about the cross and we talk about the agony and all those kind of things. And yes, and we will again. But let me start back just a little bit. And let's talk about the, the humiliation of the cross before we ever get to the cross. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8? He said that Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself. There's a humility in what he had done. He humbled himself and took on flesh, became a man, and he emptied himself. He, he, he didn't grasp at that position of equality with the Father, but he let loose of that and took on flesh, humbled himself, even to the death of the cross. Not just that he died, but it was even to the extent that he died on a cross. And that was a horrible death and humiliating. I mean, basically, they strip you of your clothes and hang you out for everybody to gaze at. Do you know how humiliating it must have been for Jesus to have been crucified and and the whole procedure and and um you know walking down through the mockery and misrepresentation he must have heard in the streets of jerusalem as he was carrying his cross and they were saying what what's this guy being put to death for oh he's a blasphemer 
Jesus never blasphemed God. All the things that he must have heard within earshot of all the masses that must have crowded around as he walked, none of it was true. You don't think that's humiliating? Have you ever been lied about and it makes you so mad? Have you ever been lied about and heard somebody lie about you? Do you stay quiet or do you defend yourself? Usually we defend ourselves. Jesus didn't. When I was a boy, do you remember Boy's Life magazine? Guys, do you remember that? You know, it was like a Boy Scout magazine. And, and there was always Charles Atlas inside. Uh, do this and you'll become like Charles Atlas and you'll have muscles on muscles. And, and I always thought, man, that is the coolest thing. I want to be Charles Atlas. And, and I would look at those ads and they would always have that 98-pound weakling who gets sand kicked in his face. You remember those? And so he, then he signs up for Charles Atlas and nobody kicks sand in his face anymore. Well, Jesus was treated terribly but he wasn't any 98-pound weakling. He could have brought an end to it at any moment. He had at his call 10,000 legions of angels. Or 10, uh, yeah, um, but, but he didn't. He, he just took it. And that had to have been extremely difficult. I don't know if we've given that aspect any consideration as we reflect on the cross, the humiliation of the cross was hard. When I was in high school, there was a bus stop that we would get on the bus, and there was a girl who had been smoking pot that morning at the bus stop, and when she got, to, got ready to get up on the bus, she fell backwards and cracked her head on the concrete, and they had to call an ambulance. Now, I, I grew up in a little town of 3,000 people, maybe, um, and it had one main street and my dad had preached there. Well, he preached there for 50 years in that same town. Everybody knew everybody. And, and so the, the, and we're right on the main street as everybody's going to work. And the police, two police cars pull up, an ambulance pulls up. They take her away to the hospital. And then the police want to interview those of us who were at the bus stop to say what happened. So it was my turn to get called off the bus. And they call me in front of the bus. And these two policemen are talking to me with their cars and blue lights on. And everybody's going to work going, that's that Higginbotham boy. His dad's a preacher. What in the world did he do? I was so humiliated that morning. I had done nothing. But yet I know everybody that drove by thought I had done something horrible because of what was taking place, what they saw. Do you not, maybe that helps you to understand what Jesus must have felt as the masses thought he had done something horrible, worthy of death, when he had never done anything, thought anything, said anything that was the least bit wrong. He's the only perfect man that ever lived, and we put him on a cross. Uh, it's unbelievable. But the, the, the suffering of Jesus begins with that humiliation, and, and uh, you, you think about all that. Then, then you think about the agony of the cross, and that agony doesn't begin with that first nail. That agony begins, well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22 and verse 44. The Bible talks about how the Jesus... Uh, perspired and it was described as great drops of blood now that may be a, a metaphor for you know he was or simile for 
you know, he was just really perspiring, like a person would when they were bleeding uh, freely. That could be what it means, but there's also a condition called hematidrosis that is a physiological condition that possibly, you know, when under stress your capillaries burst and, and blood can mix actually with the, the sweat glands, and, and then when you sweat, you perspire, it, it would coagu uh, coagulate little droplets of blood on your body. It could have been a physiological explanation, and it's Luke, the physician, who's the only one who mentions this. So I don't know uh, whether it's just he was perspiring profusely or if it was a physiological thing, I don't know. But I know that he was under severe stress and Luke says he was at the point of death. It was that heavy upon him. And then after he was taken from the garden, they, they took him and they scourged him. Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 and 30. That scourging implement uh, was, you know, uh, uh, leather straps that had glass or some sharp bone in it or, or a rock that, you know, you would, you would hit a person. And it wasn't just welts, like snapping somebody with a towel. It, it, it would literally tear your flesh. Did you watch The Passion of the Christ years ago or ever see that? I mean, that was one of the most graphic scenes. And I remember somebody saying, oh, that's so over the top. That's ridiculous. Nobody would even survive that. Right. People didn't sometimes survive those things. It would kill them. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who lived at the same time of Jesus, he said that many people did not survive the beatings by the Romans, the scourgings. He said in his own words that those scourgings would dig deep wounds in a person's flesh. I'm afraid the passion of the Christ had it pretty accurate in the way they portrayed the beating of Jesus. Now, the Jews had a law that said you can only beat a man 40 times, and they would stop at 39 in case they miscounted. The Romans had no such law. I don't know how many times Jesus was beaten. There's no telling, but I do know this. He must have been weakened and in a horrible situation when they were through with him. Then they, well, there's a statement that always puzzled me in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14. Uh, and Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. It says that his visage was marred more than any man's. Visage is your appearance. His, his appearance was marred more than any man. Well, I, I never, well, how come? Well, maybe because they were punching him, which they did, and they were hitting him with a reed, and I, I, yeah, something about like a shovel handle. Um, I, I, maybe that, but, but more. Because Isaiah <clears throat> informs us that they also plucked out his beard. Now, if a man has a beard and you come up and grab a bunch of hair of his beard and pull it out, is it just hair that you're going to take out of his beard? Um, he must have been a mess physically, bloody, um, disfigured because of what they did to him. The, the Bible tells us that he carried his own cross for a ways until they had Simon uh, compelled him to help him with that. And then they <clears throat> laid him down. 
stretched his hands and arms out and nailed his hands and arms to the cross and his feet to the cross. I, I grew up in Chester, West Virginia, which is just north of Pittsburgh, uh, about 25 miles. <clears throat> there was a place called Youngstown, Ohio. Maybe you've heard of it, but it was another, you know, 30 miles from us and farther north. And I remember we would get Youngstown News, and it was a big thing. When I was in high school, there was a man who was closing up his filling station, and a, a robber had come in right as he was closing for the day. And, and the man pled for his life. He said, I have a family at home. Please don't do anything. Please. And, and so the guy had mercy on him, if you want to call it that, and he took a, a vice grip on the edge of his workbench, told him to put his hand in it, Tighten that till it broke the bones in his hand. Took his other hand and stretched it over and laid it down on the workbench and took a hammer and nail and nailed his other hand to the workbench. And his wife eventually came and realized what had happened. He wasn't home and they checked on him and they found him and everybody was looking for this guy. What kind of a monster would do something like that? Um, and as I told that story, I saw your faces. You kind of went, oh, that's awful. And it is. But why don't we scrunch our faces when we read of the death of Jesus in Scripture? Is it because it's 2,000 years ago and that means it's, it's somehow less real to us? We need to realize that what Jesus went through, he became a man and dwelt among us and he experienced what we experience in terms of pain and suffering and 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 if you can feel for that man in Youngstown Ohio then you ought to be able to feel for Jesus don't let your familiarity with the story dull your senses as to what he experienced and why he experienced it the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 that he, that is God, made him Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might attain to the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God let Jesus die so that we could go to heaven, so that we could live. I remember hearing a number of years ago about uh, Auschwitz. You, you've heard of that place. It was a prisoner of war camp that, uh, well, they killed millions of people there and incinerated the bodies. They were killing so many people there that they couldn't even keep up in the incinerators, and they would just stack bodies like cordwood, you know, out, and, and they were burning. They had a rule in order to keep people from trying to escape this place, if anyone tried to escape or successfully escape from a particular barrack, they would just call out 12 or 10 names at random and execute those guys. So it kind of cut down on people trying to escape. Well, there was a Polish soldier by the name of Francis Gajabnicek who was captured and brought to Auschwitz and shortly after his arrival, there was an escape from his barrack. Commandant called them all out and just began to ram randomly, he called out 10 names. Gajabnichik's name was one of them. And he fell on his knees and begged for his life. He said he had a wife and children back home, please don't do this. 
Well, that fell on deaf ears. That guy was so hardened by death and murder. It, it meant nothing to him. He was due to die. But there was another man in line by the name of Maximilian Kolb. He was a Franciscan priest, and he stepped forward and asked the commandant, can I take his place? I have no wife and I have no children. Can I stand in his place? And for reasons we'll never know, the commandant allowed it to happen. And this man, along with nine others, were marched off and they were murdered slowly over a period of 11 days. They were exposed to the elements and not given food and so forth, and they all eventually die. This Polish soldier was later interviewed in the early 90s, late 80s, and the news crew was in his house and he took them out back as he told the story of this man who died for him. And, and in his yard, he had a tombstone that said to Maximilian Kolb, the man who died in my place. Now listen, if you understand the story of Francis Gajabnicek and Maximilian Kolb, then you understand the gospel of Christ. Sometimes a story will help us to understand the story, and that's one that does. If you get it, that a man chose to die so that somebody else could live, then that's the story of Jesus. He went to the cross so that you wouldn't have to die. Why should you be a Christian? Why should you be faithful as a Christian? because someone died for you. How can we ignore that or minimize that or pretend it didn't happen or act as though it didn't happen? That's the height of ingratitude. We need to be Christians because someone gave their life, his life, so that we could live. Let me give you a second reason. Second reason why you ought to be a Christian is not only because of what he did, he died on a cross for you, but what he's doing. He's preparing a place for us in heaven. You remember John 14? Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said, I'm going away. I'm going to die. I'm dying for you. But when I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you and take you to it. Don't you want to go to heaven? The longer I live, the more I want to go to heaven. I suppose there was a time in my life when I was much younger and, and, you know, I wanted to graduate from college. I wanted to get a job. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to get a dog. Uh, you know, I never was allowed to have a dog when I was a kid. I wanted a dog. And, and there are all these things that you want to do in life. And then you've done them. And as you get older and, and closer to the end, there's less to look forward to. There's more trouble in your future because our bodies break down. I understand why John, in the book of Revelation, this elderly man, maybe in his 90s, says, Lord, come quickly. I get it. That may not be the cry of a 20-year-old, but I can see why it would be the cry of an elderly man. Heaven 
is a place that I want to participate in. I want to serve the Lord because I want to go to heaven. I want to be with the Lord. And what is heaven? I mean, you, you hear it described. I, I don't know how, you know, it's not. You, you go to the book of Revelation and you've, you have walls of jasper and a gate made out of a solid pearl and there's street of gold and, and a crystal sea. Those are attempts to describe the beauty and the majesty of this place. Heaven isn't physical like we have here. It's a spiritual realm. God is spirit and will be spirits. And, and so how can you, like if you were to talk to a Native American who lived 200, 300 years ago, how would you describe an airplane to that person? An airplane? What's an airplane? Well, it's kind of... It's kind of like a giant bird that you just kind of get on its back and it flies you play. You, you might use that. That Oh, okay, I kind of get that. Not literally, but it gives you a description. And, and that's what John is trying to do in the book of Revelation. Jesus reveals this. Tell, tell these folks that it is wonderful. It is fantastic. It's magnificent. It's beautiful. You don't want to miss it. Not only is it all those things, but you know what? One of the best things and the most compelling thing about heaven to me is that it's a place of reunion. Have you had people die that you loved and you're heartbroken? Listen, heaven fixes all that. And all the inequities of this life where you just, man, life has been a bummer. It's been, I've been cheated of joy because of all these circumstances. Heaven rights all those wrongs. I, I want to be a part of that. When, when our daughter was, our oldest daughter was just a little girl when we'd have these nightly prayers, she would pray for her mansion in heaven. Lord, uh, I want mine to be pink. She made specific requests. I, I want a pink mansion, and I want it to be big enough so that grandma and granddad and grammy and papa and all my cousin, you know, she went through this big long list of everybody that would be housed in this house. And I always laughed with Kim. I said, my idea of heaven was not necessarily living in the same house with your mom and dad forever, but, uh, you know, it was my, uh, it was my daughter's uh, concept, and she had it right in her childish way, childlike way. She had this, it's going to be a place where we all get to be together, and she's dead on there. Do you not long for that? To be reunited with people that you loved and you miss and you're heartbroken because they're gone. I want to serve the Lord because I want to re-engage with people where goodbyes don't have to be forever. They can just be temporary. When we first moved to Glasgow, Kentucky, uh, now about uh, 30 years ago, uh, there was a little boy who had been born, he was born with a, a tumor, a brain tumor. Uh, they gave him five years. They did surgery on him, and uh, he was blind because of the surgery. And uh, they said, we can't do anything more than what we've done. We are estimating he'll live for about five years. We moved to Glasgow in his fifth year of life, and he was sick. 
And uh, I, I went to his house one day. He was actually, he was dying when I went to his house. And he was laying on his bed. And he had toys all on the edge of his bed. Um, his dad told me, well, those are there because he knows he's dying. We've talked to him about all that. And he wants to take those toys to heaven with him. And so he asked the father to put them on his bed so that he could take them when he died. Some of the toys were still in boxes, had never been opened, because he would listen to TV and he would hear a commercial and he'd say, Dad, will you go get that for me? Because I'd like to have that in heaven too. He was too sick to play with it, but his father would go, of course, and go buy what it is that he wanted. And as that little boy laid there, he said, I know what's going to happen. My mom and dad told me I'm, I'm going to die, but the angels are going to come, and they're going to take care of me, and they're going to take me to be with Jesus. And then he teared up, and he said, I just wish I could take my mama with me. Man, that's heartbreaking. It, it wasn't a week and a half, two weeks maybe, that I stood at the head of that little boy's casket Everybody had filed out of the funeral home except his mom and dad, and they stood there, and they were bent over in that casket, uh, loving on that little boy. And I stood there, and I thought to myself, how do you walk away? They invested their life in this little boy, and he's gone. How do you walk away? I know the answer to that, and I knew the answer when I asked it in my mind as I watched them. And, and the answer is this, that is not the end. For the child of God, those don't have to be the end. That's just a temporary separation. That mother and father had more reason to serve the Lord more faithfully at that moment than they ever had in their life because they have a hope of a reunion that will be forever. David had a child that died in infancy, and he didn't want that child to die. He begged God to spare its life, but that little child died, and David got up and washed himself. They were afraid to tell him that he had died because they thought he would just, you know, flip out, I guess. And, and, but when they told him, he just got up and dressed and went to the house of the Lord. And they said, well, what's, we thought, we saw you praying and fasting and, and we thought you would just lose it. And here you just get up and dress and go to worship. What's up with that? And he said, I, I can't bring him back, but I can go to where he is. That was his resolve. Man, I want to go to heaven when I die. Because there are people that I love that are awaiting me. And so when you ask me, why should I be a Christian? I'm going to tell you, number one, because Jesus died for you. And number two, he's prepared a place for you called heaven in which nothing that offends will dwell. And it'll be a place where all your tears and your sorrows and your pains, all of that will be wiped away. Let me give you a third and final reason. Why should you be a Christian or be faithful as a Christian? The third reason is this, because of what Jesus will do to you if you don't obey. 
You see, we, he's, what he's done for us is he's died. What he's doing for us is that he's preparing a place for us in heaven. And what he'll do to us is if we don't listen, is he'll cast us into hell. Hell has all but been diminished or expunged from our conversations today. No, we still talk about it in this sense. We, we have some really funny jokes about hell. And we dress the devil up like a little cute. You know, we, we put our little children in devil's costumes and give them the little horns and, and give them a little plastic pitchfork. And it cute as a button. We've turned hell into a joke, into a byword. I, I remember a commercial they used to have on television where this guy walks out of a building and bam, he, a Mack truck runs over him and he finds himself waking up in this room and there's a cookie, a chocolate chip cookie, the size of the communion table. And he's like, yes. And he starts eating that cookie and he sees a refrigerator over there and he walks over and there's, it's filled with cartons of milk. And he grabs the first carton and shakes it, and it's empty. And he grabs the second, it's empty. The third, empty. And he gets more frantic, and they're all empty. And then he just stops and says, wait, where am I? As if hell is going to be comparable to having a cookie and not having milk with it. Folks, that diminishes the Bible doctrine of hell. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, Knowing the terror of the Lord, Paul said, we persuade men. When we don't talk about hell, we do the, the, the lost and we do the, the, the body of Christ in injustice. Paul said it's a motive for doing right. And, and you know, when, when I was a little boy, you, you know those flyback games? You, you, you had a rubber band and a ball, and you'd hit, the, hit it with a paddle. I hated that game. I didn't want that in my house because I'd break that rubber band, and you know what my dad would have? A fresh new paddle, and that's what uh, he used and would put it up in a closet. I didn't want that, and when I was little, I obeyed my dad because all he had to do was look at that closet door, and I was like straightening up because I didn't want that paddle. But by the time I was like, I don't know, third grade, I was bigger than my dad, uh, you know, but more seriously. But as I got older, I didn't obey because I was afraid of that paddle in the closet. I obeyed because of my respect and love for my dad. And I think most of us, when we start out in our Christian walk, if we're to be, you know, remember back, we were afraid to go to hell. That's probably what motivated us to do it. You're thinking, man, if I died, I'd be lost forever in a devil's hell. And so you were baptized, and that fear was the motivator at the beginning. But as you mature in Christ, it's more about your love for him. That's just natural. That's the way it usually works. Why would we rob people of that natural motivation by not talking about hell? Back in the, uh, well, about 175 years or so ago, there was the Great Awakening in the New England states, and there was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards who preached a very famous sermon. You can get online and read it if you want. Uh, it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he had people begging before he finished, tell us what we have to do so that we can escape this, this fate. 
I've heard people make a, Edwards made a statement in that sermon, and I've heard people abuse it and misunderstand it, misapply it. And maybe you've heard, have you ever heard somebody say, I don't believe in a God that'll dangle us over the fires of hell. I don't just, I don't believe in that kind of a God. Well, Edwards made a comment close to that, but absolutely in a different context. Here's what Edwards said in the sermon. Because we are sinners, we dangle over the, th the eternal fires of hell and by the thin thread of our life. That's all that separates us from eternity in hell. And he said, and were it not for the good providence of God that holds on to that thread of life, we would have been lost. Now, I do believe that imagery, and that's what Edwards was talking about. Our sin has jeopardized our souls. And were it not for the good providence of God who didn't just zap us when we chose to disobey him, we would have long since been lost. But God is good, and he doesn't want us to perish. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. And so he sustains our life and gives us chance after chance after chance to be right with him. But the day will come when that thread will break or his patience will be exhausted. What are we going to do? I mean, have you listened to how the Bible describes hell? God doesn't want to spring this on you and say, wait, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know it was so bad. I didn't know what it was going to be like. So he describes it. Jesus talks about it more than anybody else in Scripture. It's a lake of fire. It's eternal. The smoke of their torment arises day and night forever and ever. There's no time out in hell. You can't just like, wait, time out. Let me just catch my breath. And then, okay, five minutes, I'll be back in. Okay, there I go, back in. There's no time out. It's day and night forever and ever. It is outer darkness. We, we picture hell as this great big party place for all these people that are like good old boys, and that's not it. The devil isn't going to be like the kingpin, all these people having a ball. Everybody's going to be in their own personal struggle with this horror of this place, and it's not for... If it were a million years long, you could say in 999,999 years and 364 days, I'm going to be out of this place. You can't say that. There, there's no pity. There's no, you know, I'll just let them out. You, you will be, if you die outside of Christ, you will be a sinner in the hands of an angry God. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, you know, people who died under the, or who sinned under the law, the old law, they were punished. And then he said this, but of how much sorer, that's worse, how much sorer punishment do you suppose those worthy who have trodden underfoot the sacrifice of God, who have counted his blood as a common thing, and who have insulted the spirit of his grace? You think you can get by and God's going to be cool with you 
If you reject the sacrifice of Jesus, oh yeah, I know he died on the cross. I get that story. I know it. I believe it. And someday I'll do something about it, but not yet. If you die in that state, you treat that sacrifice as no big deal. And you treat that blood that he shed as a comp no, it, everyday stuff. Nothing special about that blood he shed on the cross. If you use it as like a, a, a rug to walk on, to trample on, just to wipe your feet on. If you think you can insult the spirit of God's grace like that and get away with it, you're mistaken. God says people who do that have nothing left but a fearful expectation of judgment. Hell's real. And quite frankly, sometimes it sickens me when, when I think about it. When I was in high school, there was a boy that I grew up with. We were on the same baseball. Well, we played baseball together on opposite teams, but we, we played all the sports together. He's a, he was an All-American or uh, All-State uh, middle linebacker, uh, he, he, athletic, blonde-headed, blue-eyed, good-looking young man. And I was picking up a bunch of guys to go to basketball practice one day, and an ambulance passed us on the road. And we said, man, somebody must have gotten hurt bad because it was flying. We got on out to practice, and about in the middle of the practice, a father came into the gym and called me off to the side and said, I've got some really bad news. And he told me, my friend had died, was killed in a motorcycle wreck. I had never really experienced death. I mean, that was one of the first times that somebody close to me and I was old enough to understand and all that uh, had died. And it was, uh, well, I mean, I remember standing at the casket with his mom and dad. And, and as people filed by, they would say things like, he's at peace. Uh, God needed another angel, all those kind of things. And it was then, I mean, I remember it as if it were yesterday. It was like a ton of bricks had dropped on my shoulders because it was the first really realization that I think I ever had of what it means to be lost. My friend wasn't a Christian. And I know, I'm not judging him. I, I know he wasn't a Christian. And, and he knew the difference between right and wrong. And I'll leave it at that. But if I understand the word of God correctly and you die outside of Christ and you know and what sin is and understand, you're, you're lost. And when I thought of that then, I couldn't imagine someone that I knew so close would be experiencing this fate. And you know what? He still is, if my understanding is correct. There's, there's, and there's nothing that can be done about it. And he will for all eternity. And that sickens my stomach sometimes when I think about that. How can someone that I knew and ha was so close to, man, they're experiencing that? And it could be the person in the pew next to you, or it could be you in the pew. Oh, and if you think, well, that won't happen to me, I've got, I'm got, 
I was, take, I was speaking in Louisville, Kentucky at a youth rally. I picked up a bunch of kids from our youth group, and it was like 5 o'clock in the morning, and we had a van packed full of kids, and we headed out, and it was the last traffic light in the city. And somebody in the back, one of the teenagers in the back of the van said, hey, has anybody ever seen a dead person before? I don't know why I said that. Teenagers, they say things, you know. It was the weirdest thing to say. And nobody in the, the car van had seen one until about 15 seconds because when that light changed, we went forward and crested a hill when there was a car wreck in front of us and there was a girl that was thrown through the windshield of her car and there she lay in the middle of the street right in front of us, killed instantly. And there is her body in front of us as we go to a youth rally that morning. That girl was 18 years old. She was going to work at McDonald's trying to pay for college. You think she woke up that morning and said a special goodbye to her mom and dad because she thought it might be the last day of her life? Nah. But it was. We don't know how long we have. And hell is real. And it's eternal. And it's for keeps. And, and God is not going to back down and say, well, you know, I just like you so much. I'm, I know what I said. I'll just let you come on in into heaven. Listen, he has investment in this. He gave his son, and you know it. Now, what are you going to do about it? If you ignore that sacrifice and walk on it like it's a rug and insult him in that way, you won't be the recipient of pity. You'll be the recipient of his eternal vengeance. Why should you be a Christian? I've given you three reasons tonight, and I really don't have anything else to give you. Uh, you know, we can talk about uh, games and excitement and fellowship and all those kind of things. Those things are good. But listen, I don't know anything that would motivate you any better than what the Bible gave us. Jesus died for you. He's preparing a place for you in heaven. And if you don't, there's a place called hell. So what about you? I don't want you to make decisions based on emotions or anything like that tonight. You, you know what I want you to do? I want you to do exactly what Isaiah the prophet told the people to do in the Old Testament. Isaiah 1 and verse 18. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they can be white like wool. I want you to use your intellect tonight. Why would you not serve the Lord? Why would you not be a Christian? when someone has died for you, loved you that much, and they prepared a place for heaven, a place in heaven for you, and if you don't, well, there's a place called hell. Why wouldn't you obey the gospel knowing that? And if you're a child of God and you've let distance come between you and God, and, and what if you died tonight? What if he came back tonight? Are you ready for that? Are you, are you ready to face eternity separated from God with the knowledge, man, I had it. I could have been in heaven, and I let loose. I'm just encouraging you to do the right thing. I don't have anything else to offer than what God's word offers, and it's sufficient.
If you need to obey the gospel, do it tonight, not tomorrow, but tonight. And if you're a child of God already and, and, and maybe unfaithful and you need to make your life right, don't worry about what other people think. They're not going to be there with you in the day of judgment. If you need to make things right and ask for prayers, then come forward as we stand and sing this song and, and get your life right with God. Let's stand and sing.